0: This is Cole, and welcome to the Holiday Moons podcast where we share our love for the holidays with you year round.
1: This is Beth, and I'm going to be talking about Tulip Mania.
2: This is Sydney, and I will be talking about Strawberry Shortcake.
3: And this is Randy, and I will be talking about the birthday song. So, welcome to Holiday Moons. We begin each episode with the holiday happenings for the week. So, we've had a pretty busy week here, even while we're self isolating. In Virginia.
0: And a pretty busy weekend. I guess that's my big holiday happening is I just moved into a a new place. Um, So that was a big change. Moved out of this house into a new place. Um, Lived here for about 17 and a half years. So that's crazy. Yeah, It is crazy. Yep. Yes. Um, Was able to get just about everything that I wanted into. I have a good, it's a wide space. It's a lot of room, um, which is really nice. So... Was able to get uh, just about everything that I wanted. Wasn't able to take one big thing that I wanted with me. Right, what was that? And that would be uh, my little cat, who you may or may not have heard at different times uh, meowing on the podcast.
2: So really, your big thing was a little thing.
0: My big thing was a little thing. <laughs> the the thing, thing
2: with a big personality. I was going to say, big attitude? <laughs> like, yeah. She
0: is, she is a little thing. But unfortunately, one of my roommates is allergic to cats. Which um, is a bummer. Yep, and dogs. And also birds, so I can't get a bird. So yeah. all except humans. Yep, always wanted to get uh, a cockatoo, so it would have been this would have been the perfect time. I'm sure my roommates would have been cool with. <laughs> right, with yeah, with that, yeah. as We're roommates often are. He yeah. would be chill.
3: <laughs> uh, he'd be a chill. Yeah, project. you can you can get those. There's like yeah. categories. These are the chill ones. These are the non-chill
0: ones. I don't know why people don't get the, I don't know. the chill ones more. <laughs> I don't know. They're like, readily available. Yes, right.
2: it's like someone getting a chill cat. It's like where did you find that? Yeah. I know. We never end up with those. No, but you did once. Oh yeah, Angel. Yeah, she was. She also fell off the banister a couple times onto the piano. She was a little yeah. ditzy. <laughs> yeah, a little
0: spacey. But sweet. She's very a bit sweet. sweet. But yep, yeah, we uh, yeah. yesterday. Uh, so you guys were moving stuff in and like washing dishes and helping me out with that all week um but then yesterday we spent about um the i'd say day. yeah the whole <laughs> the whole day it, it ended like up being like nine to seven or something 10, like that
3: yeah ten to seven something like that mm-hmm. yeah, getting
1: s- everything just transferred over yeah, everything that we didn't do during yeah. the week, yeah the yeah. weather was gorgeous,
3: yeah, and the interesting thing about the um Coronavirus and doing a move in the coronavirus period of time that we're in yeah. is that we're doing it all by ourselves. Right. We had yeah, had yeah. friends planning to um, help us out. We'd helped them out with some of their kids' moves, and um, we were they're going to help us out. Fortunately for us, Cole didn't have a lot of stuff to move, and
1: not a lot of heavy things. Yeah,
3: and we moved a lot of the kitchen stuff and took care of that completely
1: ahead <laughs> of time.
3: Yeah. So um, I feel for anybody who has a big house move during this period uh-huh. of time. Yeah. Uh, because just doing that what we did was a lot for just the four of us
1: yeah there were four yeah we're four adults and it would have been nice to have a couple more
3: <laughs> yeah and once again the cats were no help at all
1: they were not no. 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 no
0: no in fact they were a hindrance they would often either be in the way
3: or try to escape as we were uh <laughs> right leaving doors open carrying right. heavy things out right right yes, yes. but we we're glad we were able to get that done and I know you're excited for the new place. Yeah. Uh, yep, Sound quality is really good considering. Oh, wait, you're actually here. Yeah. I'm actually <laughs> but um, he due to here the, the coronavirus and
0: being me being in contact with other people, I'll probably have to be phoning in
3: for the next few podcasts. Yeah. You phoned in several times. Yeah. I phoned it in a lot. <laughs> Very phoning. To, be, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> what other holiday happenings do we have this week?
2: Well, speaking of our friends, the Andersons. It is Marie Anderson's birthday this coming week. It's as in, of our recording. As of our recording, exactly. Right. So I was looking on Pinterest for birthday gift ideas. Oh, as Pinterest. you usually do. Yes, yes.
3: You Lovely. are an expert user of Pinterest. You I are,
2: love Pinterest. You're like amazing. And I found this super cute idea. Now I know last podcast we talked about. I talked about birthday gift basket ideas. And so this one, I found a red box gift. Th- where you put the words red box on red cardboard, stick movies on the cardboard, and then have these buckets, like popcorn buckets, like the old-fashioned kind, and you fill them with goodies, and you wrap them in silphane, and put red... Well, I put red bows on it. Anyways, it ended up super cute. So cute. Yeah. yeah.
0: yeah. yeah and the um, you put yellow grass in the popcorn buckets, too, so it yeah. looked like popcorn, which yeah. was... Fantastic. Yeah.
2: And so I put popcorn in there, I put candy in there. Like um, candy. Yeah. movie candy. Yeah, movie candy. Yeah, exactly. And I also put um coffee and a mug that said something like, As I suspected I was right all along. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> which was cute. The movies I chose it was like The Godfather, the Lego Batman, um, that dark cat. So my friend has a lot of cats. Yeah. yeah. Um. As yeah. well as a number of dogs. Three movies
0: all in the same genre. Yeah. <laughs> so <Super> cute. <laughs> super
2: cute. Yeah. So it ended up super cute. I put it on the Andersons' front porch. They picked it up. So whenever Marie will see them for her birthday, um, they said that they'll set it up. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Because so.
3: so again, coronavirus time frame that we're in, you yeah. couldn't just give it to her. Right. right. You had to put it yep. on her parents' porch. porch. Right. Send a picture of how you want it set up right. for when right. Marie or them will see each other yeah. the next time. <laughs> yeah. And I rang the
2: doorbell with the wipey. <laughs> yeah, oh,
3: and then crazy. I backed
2: away and then saw them take it in and then I went to yeah. the car. But yeah, yeah. So that was um, that was really fun.
3: Yeah, you are really good at using Pinterest. It has a lot of great ideas mm-hmm. on there. I think uh, your ability to search helps you because sometimes yeah. you, people don't know how to use it and kind of how to search for things because so, mm-hmm. there's so much information out there. Speaking of the Andersons, Mr. Anderson is a den leader for a Boy Scout troop, or he's a co-leader.
1: A troop leader. Troop what leader. Are they leader? Dens? Yeah, I don't I know. know. Younger <laughs> ones are dens. I don't know they're. But a troop <laughs> leader yeah. Yeah, Boy for a Boy, leader. Boy
3: Scout troop, and this is the time of year they bring mulch over. So again, coronavirus affected. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I had to put a check out the door for them because I couldn't just give it, you know, hand it to them, yeah. right? So I had a little package to to kind of throw towards them. Because they actually came pretty early on Saturday and delivered, I think it was 40 bags of mulch.
1: And he stopped and got his grown son. Right. And his grown son came out and helped him deliver. Right. Because they
3: were only <laughs> delivering in like family units as much as they could. Right. Um, for, again, safety reasons. Right. Along the way. So, yeah, just very interesting how things are... Adapting. Adapting, yeah. But it was nice weather this week. We've had some really pretty days. Gorgeous, um, yeah. With staying home more often, I've been able to get some yard work Prepped and ready for the mulch, which has been really good.
1: And it's a great. It was a great week to move yeah. coal. Yeah. It felt like a. It felt like an early fall day, mm-hmm. nice and and a little bit cool, but still had the warmth to it. Yeah.
3: And the red buds are kind of in peak bloom this weekend, so that's yep. been really pretty to see as well.
1: Speaking of blooming, last week I was talking about tulips because it, they are one of Sydney's and my favorite flowers. And while researching the tulips, I came across something called tulip mania. Oh. Which sounds just fun. Lots of tulips. It's not that fun. <laughs> so tulip mania came from the Dutch tulip bulb market bubble. It's such, it sounds like a Dr. Seuss thing that you'd say. Like big brown bear, blue bull, beautiful baboon, biking backwards. Do you remember that? Wow, that's
3: really good. I remember it, is, I, it. Really, <laughs> I read
1: that a, a lot. But it's the Dutch tulip bulb market bubble. Also known as Tulip Mania, you can see why it stuck, why the... Why the, um, the Tulip
0: Mania one stuck. Yes. yeah,
1: <laughs> was one of the most famous market bubbles and crashes of all time, oh. according to some. I do not associate that with a crash. Mm-mm. I know, right? Mm. Although, Big Brown Bear, Blue Bull, Beautiful Baboon, biking Backwards did crash too.
3: Oh, wow. I, okay. didn't, I didn't didn't think I Into somebody's <laughs>
1: banana or something. Anyway.
3: To so avoid alliteration. Very <laughs> okay. loose connection there.
1: I thought it was quite valid. Okay, very valid connection. That's what I meant to say. <laughs> so, it occurred in Holland during the early 1600s when speculation drove the value of tulip bulbs to extremes. So, at the height of the market, the rarest tulip bulbs traded for as much as six times the average person's annual salary. So... I had to look up what a stock market bubble was because I really wasn't 100% sure. I could have guessed, but I wasn't 100% sure. So I'm just gonna briefly um, explain that. So a stock market bubble is a period of growth in stock prices followed by a fall. Typically, prices rise quickly and significantly, growing far beyond their previous value in a short period of time. When they fall, they do so quickly and often below the starting value. So a stock market bubble can affect either the market as a whole or specific sectors, such as within individual industries or geographic regions. And we're talking here about a geographic region. They typically occur when investors overvalue stocks, either misjudging the value of the underlying companies or trading based on criteria unrelated to the value of a company.
0: Um, And I do want to point out that Holland is not an interchangeable word with Netherlands. Holland is a part of the Netherlands, the wealthiest region of the Netherlands, or the United Provinces as it would have been called during this time. So it wouldn't have affected the entire Netherlands. The entire is that Netherlands. Holland specific? Yep.
1: Thank you, Colf, for clarification. Well I am yeah. a historian. Well, you are. <laughs> <laughs> One knows these things. Wait, you're a
0: historian? Wait, what? I've never mentioned that before.
1: Well, this is uh Good timing, because I'm going to talk about the history of the Dutch Tulip Bowl Markets bubble. What? I love that. (laughs) That's my favorite market bubble. This is uh, just a little... My favorite
0: fake market bubble. What? We'll get to that later.
1: (laughs) Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Okay, I'm going to go over a couple little things to tell you a little more about this event. So, the tulips arrived in Western Europe in the late 1500s, and being an import from Turkey... They commanded the same, and this is um, somebody else's words, the same exoticism that spices and Oriental rugs did. So it looked like no flower native to the continent. They became luxury items, and the well-to-do wanted them in their gardens. It's kind of uh, a status symbol. So in quotations, it has, It was deemed a proof of bad taste in any man of fortune to be without a collection of tulips. A collection
3: of them, huh?
1: Yeah. Following the affluent, the merchant middle class of Dutch society, which did not exist in such developed forms elsewhere in Europe at the time, sought to emulate their wealthier neighbors and also wanted tulips.
0: And that's largely in part to, at this time, the Dutch East India Company was in full swing. Uh, At its height, it was worth, you know, counting for inflation... About $8 trillion, which is eight times the size of Amazon. It's just crazy. Um, to think about This was back when private companies... So it was bringing all kinds of wealth into the Netherlands. Because this was back when companies could commission their own private armies, uh, occupy land, and declare a war on their own. So... Yeah, it, that's great. At this point, fun. the uh, yeah. Imagine if we went back to that. Yeah. If Amazon could declare <laughs> <laughs> occupy territory on its own.
1: Yeah. Not good. Not cool.
0: Not cool, but very affluent for. Uh, right. For the entire Netherlands at this time. Well,
1: in 1634, tulip mania swept through Holland. The rage among the Dutch to possess tulip bulbs was so great that the ordinary industry of the country was neglected. Now, this is somebody else's. This is another quote. And the population, even to its lowest dregs, embarked the tool of trade.
3: Oh, not the lowest dregs. The lowest <laughs> dregs. True.
1: In the year 1637, prices began to fall, and they never recovered. A large part of the decline so quickly was driven by the fact that the people had purchased bulbs on credit, hoping to repay their loans when they sold their bulbs for a profit. For a while, what was happening, you were getting these large prices because they were selling the bulbs.
0: Oh, but they just like beanie babies. That's right. (laughs) Once
1: the prices started their decline, (laughs) holders were forced to sell their bulbs at any price and declare bankruptcy. So that's the problem. That's where that's a bubble burst. Mm. So the bubble had burst. Buyers announced they could not pay the high price previously agreed on for the bulbs, and the market fell apart. So the bottom line was tulip mania was said to be irrational it was a frenzy everyone was involved from chimney sweeps to aristocrats the same tulip bulb or rather tulip future was traded sometimes 10 times a day and it was said to be the foolishness of newcomers to the market that set off the crash in february of 1637 desperate bankrupt people threw themselves in canals the government finally stepped in and ceased the trade, but not before the economy of Holland was ruined. Now, this is all everything I just said was speculation. All right. Oh, really? So this is the frenzy, um, the irrational mania, everything right there. Mm-hmm. That, that that last little bit was what people have said about it. So, mm. and that makes it an exciting story, right? Yeah. I mean, it it's just a sweeping big frenzy. So I
0: think you have a couple of thoughts on that from different people um i do yes i've i'd like to give my two cents after those okay. as well
1: i looked at two different researchers one that said tulip mania was a myth and one that says nope tulip mania existed it can't be called a myth based on these things so i'm gonna start with Anne goldgar who was somebody that went in and researched extensively about tulip mania. So she said, Tulip mania wasn't irrational. Tulips were a new luxury product in a country rapidly expanding its wealth and trade networks. Many more people could afford luxuries, and tulips were seen as beautiful, exotic, and redolent of the good taste and learning displayed by well-educated members of the merchant class. Many of those who bought tulips also bought paintings or collected rarities like shells. These are Goldgar thoughts. Prices rose because tulips were hard to cultivate in a way that brought out the popular striped or speckled petals, and they seemed to be the most popular, and they were still rare. But it wasn't irrational to pay a high price for something that was generally considered valuable and for which the next person might pay even more. She said tulip mania wasn't a frenzy. It was for much of the period of trading relatively calm located in taverns and neighborhoods rather than the stock exchange it became increasingly organized with companies set up in various towns to grow buy sell bulbs and she said far from bulbs being traded hundreds of times I never found a chain of buyers longer than five and most were far shorter she contends that prices could be high but mostly they weren't Although it's true that the most expensive tulips of all cost about five thousand guilders, which is the price of a well-appointed house, and I want you to think about it a minute—that's the price of a tulip bulb. <laughs> five thousand guilders for the, which is the price of a well-appointed house. That's just for one bulb. Uh huh. Yep. She was able to identify only 37 people who spent more than 300 guilders on bulbs. So where I was talking about five thousand a minute ago. So she's saying only 37. Spent more than 300 on those. That's the yearly wage of a master craftsman, which is still huge. It's like, that's still a lot of money.
0: But it's, uh, it's the yearly wage of a master craftsman, but it's not the yearly wage of a powerful merchant at exactly. that
1: time. Exactly. And she said many tools were far cheaper. With one or two exceptions, these top buyers came from the wealthy merchant class
0: mm-hmm.
1: and were able to afford the bulbs. Far from every chimney sweep or weaver being involved in the trade, the numbers were relatively small, mainly from the merchant and skilled artisan class, and many of the buyers and sellers were connected to each other by family, religion, or neighborhood. Sellers mainly sold to people they knew. So when the crash came, it was not because of naive and uninformed people entering the market, but probably through fears of oversupply and the unsustainability of the great price rise in the first five weeks of 1637.
0: So hers is the opinion that it is overblown in terms of how big it was.
1: Exactly. She contends that these are myths. Tulip Mania is a myth. And we can blame some authors and the fact that they had best-selling books for this. In 1637, after the crash, the Dutch tradition of satirical songs kicked in. And pamphlets were sold making fun of traders. So these, these songs and these were satires were picked up by writers in the 17th century and treated as fact. So a book by Charles McKay, and I think he's I think he's Scottish, titled Extraordinary Popular Delusions and Madness of Crowds of 1841 had a huge and undeserved success, is what she said. Much of what McKay says about tulip mania comes straight from the satirical songs of 1637 and is repeated endlessly on financial websites, in blogs, on Twitter, and in popular finance books. But what we are hearing are the fears 17th century people had about 17th century situations, and people tend to like to make fun of other people for things that they do. And she is considered an authority mm-hmm. on this. Other one part <laughs> said, it's not a myth. This is from Douglas French.
0: You, uh, you can't see me, but I'm rolling my eyes. <laughs>
1: Ms. Goldbar, and this is what he says, Ms. Goldbar is the go-to person to throw a wet blanket on the notion that tulip trading was a citywide frenzy in 1636 Amsterdam in her 2007 book. And I did want to mention her book, Tulip Mania, Money, Honor, and Knowledge in the Dutch Golden Age. So he's saying that Goldgar contends tulip trading was an extension of art collecting with profit, not the motive, but instead... Their concept of rarity, their thrill when they found something strange, and that was always paramount. And that's what we just heard from her article, from the research that I found. But according to Douglas French, it doesn't hold up. Sure, rare bulbs were hard to reproduce and in the greatest demand. However, this does not explain the price history of a bulb like the common wit crudem bulb, which rose in price 26 times in January 1637 only to fall to 1 20th of its peak price a week later. So he's saying it's still, there was still something huge happening here. I mean, that, that's a lot of rising 26 times in a week is a lot. He states that Goldgar continually attempts to minimize the financial significance of tulip mania, writing in her book, That it was the confusion of values, the breakdown of honor, and the destruction of trust. But he says, this is back to French, that the same can be said about the effects on each particular culture during every speculative bubble and subsequent crash, no matter the trading vehicle.
0: See, that's when you know that someone has a bad argument. When they stop talking about the actual thing and they start talking about other things, deflecting away from, okay, these are the facts about this one.
1: Yeah, but what he's saying is he's he's bringing a he's bringing a pattern into it. He's saying just because she's saying this that those things can be said for the pattern of every bubble.
0: Right, which is um, wildly generative.
1: Well, okay. Let me read, let me read the rest of French's thing, and you can then get excited about Goldgarden and, and <laughs> defend her.
3: I don't know which way Cole's going to land on this.
1: <laughs> I don't know either. It's going to be exciting. Yeah. All right. You can so, consider
0: me the third part of this, the response to uh, Mr. French. <laughs> there you go.
1: Mr. French. He was on Buffy and um, yes. Jody. What was that called? Family Affairs? Yes, Family Affairs. Is that yeah. it? Yeah. Okay. I think, think it's family a different guy, guy, probably. Yes, very <laughs> different. So um, he was saying you can't escape economics. Readers should note that Miss Goldgar is not interested in prices or market fundamentals. Her research interests are 17th and 18th century European social and cultural history. The Netherlands and Francophone culture. So her thoughts and her views he's saying are coming from a cultural standpoint and a social standpoint not an economic standpoint. He reviewed Goldgar's book in 2007 and he said the economics profession will always define tulip mania rather than the cultural history and social ramifications. So He's saying it's the economy that you need to look at. You can't generalize based on culture the very real economic ramifications of this bubble. That it did exist and it may, it may have been different than what other people have said. One of the things that um, part of the excitement of tulip mania was that when people uh, went bankrupt they threw themselves off into the canal. That was another thing that they said and Gogar said that she had seen no evidence of that. It was interesting to look at both of these viewpoints. If you if you, if you get excited about this, you can look this up and see what you think.
0: Yeah. Um, it's uh, it's one of those exciting things in history that there are p- historians are very split on whether or not it did exist.
1: And if it did, it was it was said to be one of the first speculative bubbles, meaning it's something that rose quickly and crashed like that. So Cole, what are your thoughts on this? Having what are what are my thoughts? Yeah. thank you for
0: asking. We didn't just pause this because you forgot. <laughs> I, I had a. I actually on thought it.
1: you had given me all your thoughts, um, but I no, that's not true.
0: No, so I'm going to make it snappy because we already talked a lot about um, tulip mania. But to give you a little context, if I think that I've mentioned it before, but um, uh, I am a historian. My field of study was primarily the region of. North Africa, the Middle East, and India, uh, which we call MENA, or Middle East and North Africa. And so a lot of what I know about Europe comes from how it related to Europeans affecting this region of the world. So what I do know, and of course I studied European history, you know, all of us have to study European history, which includes tulip mania to some extent, if you're going to interact with the Netherlands at all during this period. But In terms of looking at this economically, what I do know is that this is the golden age of the Netherlands. And if you're looking at this economically, the degree to the crash that they're talking about should devastate the economy of the Netherlands. It should affect trade, the ability of the Dutch to be able to exert influence. And at this time, the Dutch are still at the height of power in the Middle East and specifically in uh, the region that we know of as Indonesia today. So the Dutch economy, while it took a hit, I imagine, from tulip mania, um, is still very much powerful enough to continue to exert influence all over the trade, to displace the Portuguese, to establish strongholds all over India and East Indies, So everyone that I've talked to—now, I've read opinions that Tulip Mania are—is real. Um, But everyone that I've talked to, every, you know, historian, professor, researcher, shares the opinion of Goldgar. Right. That something similar existed, but it didn't exist in the extreme degree because we would have seen it affect the ability, essentially, of the Netherlands to function— as a nation, if we're talking about, because uh, we're, we're talking about like a huge economic devastating crash, if Tulunia is true, right? We're looking at so unless this crash somehow did not affect the Dutch East India Company and just affected the Netherlands, it's extremely unlikely that you could have something this economically devastating in the middle of the golden age of Dutch power.
1: Well, there you go.
0: Yep. Good there's points.
1: Some, there's some
3: Additional uh, points. good points that we all know
0: here. <laughs> <laughs> authority,
1: authori- authoritative information. So that's
0: a little authority from the far east, away from the Netherlands, just yes. trickling, you know, that way.
2: Yep, very neat. Well, thank you. You're welcome. And I'm sure that the Netherlands also enjoyed sweet treats.
0: <laughs> they <laughs> do
2: like and strawberries. That? Oh, I don't which know. leads us to strawberry shortcake. Yay! Yes. I hear I that's that a topic. common
0: surname in the Netherlands.
2: Uh, no, I do not hear that.
0: Van Strawberry Shortcake.
2: No. <laughs> so um, this comes from Toryav.com. So the reason why I really like this website was because it seemed to have a much more in-depth history of Strawberry Shortcake. So when you go online, it often it gives you maybe like five paragraphs like a a single article and then it's done, this gives you like a whole like shebang, like just a lot more information. So um, if you don't know, Strawberry Shortcake is amongst one of the most beloved and um, enduring American foods. It consists of a sweetened biscuit, the shortcake or, or cake, or I mean, we'll get more into what it could be. Uh, or what it has developed over time.
0: There's questions about what it could be. (laughs) That's exciting.
2: (laughs) Loosely paired with fresh berries, typically strawberries, thus the strawberry part of the strawberry shortcake, and whipped cream. Its greatness lies in the contrasts of textures and flavors of simple cake, fruit, and cream, the hard with the soft, the moist with the dry, the sweet with the tart, etc. The shortcake part provides the ideal base as it is... Firm enough to stand up to the juicy berries and damp cream and absorbing only some of them without losing its identity or becoming a mushy mess. Unless you want it to become a mushy mess.
3: That's true. You just have to wait longer. That's right. Yeah.
2: Wait longer or, or mix it with um, milk instead of with cream. That's right. Yeah. You know. Okay.
3: Which we have one person in our family that does that. Yes. Yes. Mm.
2: That would be me. Yeah. <laughs> it's gross, but
3: I love
1: that. Yeah, yeah. my she, brothers
2: do it too. Yeah, and you do that to um, um, apple dumplings too. Yes, yes, right. That's the best way to do apple dumplings yeah. too. Yeah, I've seen people at work do that too. It must be, I don't, I don't know. know. It must be a thing. She's
0: lost somewhere. respect for those people.
2: So, in short, the short cake does not refer to the the size. <laughs> of the cake. Yeah, the size of the cake. It actually refers to. It's derived from a 15th century British usage of short akin to crumbly.
3: Ah, I always wonder why it was called shortcake.
2: Right. Adding a large amount of fat, hence shortening, to flour coats the proteins, thereby inhibiting the gluten strands from forming and resulting in a crumbly and tender texture. Shortcakes were sweetened with sugar, making them even more tender. First record of the term shortcake, and the earliest recipe for it, an unleavened rich cookie, was in the anonymous Elizabethan cookbook, The Good Housewives' Handmaid for Cookery in Her Kitchen. I think I've heard of that before. I think we've talked about that before. It's quite a title. Yeah. So. Very catchy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which it was the second printed English cookbook. So this is in London in 1588.
3: Wow, that's a long time ago. Yep.
2: Yeah, that's a second printed like- cookbook. Wow. Yeah.
3: Yeah. pre tulip mania i was ago. gonna <laughs> say that was pre tulip yeah. mania yeah so you're right Sydney. i was kind of skeptical that the netherlands would know about shortcake but they could have sounds like yeah. they could have there could have been a shortcake mania
0: well right.
2: and yeah. and within a decade shakespeare used the term shortcake for the name of a character in the merry wives of windsor
0: what was it strawberry shortcake
2: uh, it was shortcake. It was just shortcake. <laughs> that character's
0: a lot more Shakespearean than I...
2: <laughs> it was very crumbly. So among the developments that distinguished 19th century American baking and classic strawberry shortcake from the old world was the addition of potash and later baking soda to baked goods. So with that added chemical... The American shortcakes became lighter and fluffier than the English originals.
3: Oh, okay. So, the English originals sound more like the biscuits. Right. Like and ours are more like a, the cakes we're more familiar with. Right. Light and fluffy.
1: Mm-hmm. And that kind of makes sense, too, for the... Uh, it's kind of a continuing thing, yeah. I think. Yeah. yeah yes. <laughs> well, I was thinking that I don't think that's... So. <laughs> in the
3: United States, there's people that like it more biscuit-like. Yeah. And there's people that like it more, more cake-like. cake-like.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah.
3: I like it more cake-like, personally.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, but um, but Mom was saying that the Andersons Shaking make it her, more yes, of but I was a
3: saying yes, but I know she does she like <laughs> that too.
2: Yeah, we can get to her recipe in a bit, but um, the Andersons like it more biscuit like. Yes. yes, yeah. So it, and it's, they're really good too because we've had her strawberry
1: shortcake. It's really good. It's just not what I think of a strawberry shortcake. Right. It's right. just
2: Mrs. Anderson's strawberry shortcake, which is a different
1: it, food. To is me. that
0: Are you talking about that one being fluffier than?
2: No, she's hers is more biscuit like. A transitional stage in the development of modern strawberry shortcake was the recipe Strawberry Cakes, found in the June 1st, 1845, issue, page 86, wow, this is very specific, of the Ohio Cultivator, which entailed a thick, unleavened cookie split, layered with fresh strawberries, and covered with a hard sugar and egg white icing. Mm.
1: Oh. Okay, so it's kind of their version of whipped cream.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah,
1: substitute almost. Huh?
2: Yeah, so that was um, that was one recipe, um, but it did
1: start and it did start the layering. Yeah,
3: yeah, split it so, in half and layer. Yeah, which
1: mm-hmm.
2: is what we're familiar with. So shortly after um, this recipe emerged, um, it was still made without whipped cream, but um, it was immediately popularized nationwide, and that's when the term strawberry shortcake took off in America. Okay, that's interesting. When this new recipe came out. By the time of June 1862, issue of the um, of a newspaper, I guess. I'm not going to say the name. It's um, The strawberry shortcake consisted of a soda biscuit layered with fresh berries, sugar, and cream. Oh, yeah. So, okay. yeah, so now we're the soda biscuit kind of time frame.
3: What's the soda biscuit like, do you know?
2: Yeah, so a- apparently the cake should be made like soda biscuit, rather richer, but very light. Baked in a round tin. I think of Irish soda bread. Yeah.
3: Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah.
2: A cake texture. So it's to be spread with a thick layer of the strawberries covered with sugar on the cake and pour over the whole thing, um, the richest cream that you can process. Then add another layer of shortcake and another layer of strawberries. Oh, so they're pouring cream on
1: it. Not making whipped cream, but actually pouring
2: cream. Right. Okay.
1: Which That's sounds pretty
3: close to what... Except yeah, I do. use skim milk. You do. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah, this is like the thickest like, cream, cream that, that they could find. find yeah. Yeah. Although it didn't say buttermilk. It oh, does get points well. for oh, that. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So this method of making strawberry shortcake, three cake layers, berries, and cream was introduced in a cookbook. The author noting that this method of making at the finest city restaurants. So they used this recipe oh, for yeah. strawberry shortcake at that time. This is in 1866. With the advent of the new Transcontinental Railroad in 1869, the shipment of California strawberries on ice contributed to a surge in popularity of shortcake throughout the country. So at the time, like, you can only get strawberries at a certain time of year. Right. If you grew them or if the farmer down the road grew it,
3: Right, exactly. Yeah. Right.
2: So also at this time, um, articles and literary references about strawberry shortcake intensified interest among the American population. And... Finally, in my mind, with cream's popularity spread in America corresponding to refrigeration. And it became standard in the dish.
3: Nice.
2: Yeah. So finally, we got to how me, Dad, and Cole eat it. Right. (laughs) Right. So strawberry shortcake recipes became standard fare in American homes and cookbooks in every part of the country. In the 20th century, many Americans, especially Northerners with little familiarity or experience with soda biscuits, the heathens, (laughs) developed a preference for substituting pound cake, angel food cake, or hot milk sponge cake as the base. Um, In the 1920s, the Continental Bakery Company introduced sponge cakes baked in four-inch long metal pans with a rounded bottom under the name Hostess little shortbread fingers intended to be used to make strawberry shortcakes for about two months during the summer. For the rest of the year, the company made Twinkies.
0: <laughs> okay.
2: Yeah. So, and I noticed, like, in, gro- okay, so this, going off to 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 this article, of this article, yeah, going off of this article and going on to, like, what, what it could be, right? So, it, it is a shortbread, it could be more of a biscuit, it could be pre-packaged, because you guys have seen the, like, little cakes... Yeah, in they, the store, that it has this little, like, dip in the yeah, middle. Yeah, exactly. They're right. round, and they have
1: a little divot in the middle for you yeah. to put your strawberries. And your, so mm-hmm. if you're in a hurry and you want to
2: make shortcake for dinner yeah. for a, for your guests or whatever, you can just get those. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and so uh, what we use, so I was going to, so I couldn't, at first I couldn't find Mom's um, recipe, so I made strawberry shortcake today. And it was delicious. It was. I at first couldn't find Mom's recipe, so I found one on Pinterest that I had been planning to use as more of a biscuit. And Mom was very sad when she found out, I so said, I had no. her find me this. Okay, well, sure. I, I mean, I make a, you know... A, I, I make the a, best. I but. make the best. One, but if you want to try that biscuity thing, that's okay.
3: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it didn't sound okay. Yeah. So
2: I ended up using Mom's, and actually it was a lot easier than the recipe even that I was using, even though it said easy... Um, strawberry shortcake, Yeah. You know, recipe. Um, and this is what I grew up on. Yeah, so it, it, so the recipe is actually for a velvet crumb cake. So it is a very light cake. It's not as light as angel food cake, but it is still, like, very, very light. It's sweet, but not too sweet. And it's made of bisquick, sugar, milk, shortening, vanilla, and egg. And it was actually, yeah, it was very easy to make.
1: Yeah, it's very good. And it, it's, this is, um... Like I said, I grew up on this. This used to be on all of the Bisquick boxes. Oh, that's interesting. And it's not anymore. So oh. I, um, uh, quite a while ago, I I found it. It might be easier to find now.
2: Yeah. So I don't know what's on the
1: box look, now. But uh, there's like pancakes, waffles, and biscuits. And biscuits. I think those three things are on it. But it, this used to be when I was growing up. This was on the box of every Bisquick thing. Yeah. And normally. My favorite things are more homemade things. Mm-hmm. They're not box things normally. Yeah. But um, but I tried a bunch of things, and I have always come back to the velvet crumb cake yeah. from Bisquick.
0: You know, that's funny because I didn't realize how many things you did, how many things you did actually home make until I started cooking. Right. Like you're uh, I always used to like I try to make fettuccine, and I get the sauce that was at the store. And I'd be like, why does none of this taste like the sauce that she makes? Yeah. And then I was like, oh, she makes her sauce from scratch. That's why. Yeah. Um, Which is amazing.
2: And I have to say, like, you say that, you know, you normally don't like box things. This is a pretty complicated recipe. But yeah, it's water, not like you're mixing some water in there. Right, right. yeah. <laughs> Compared to yeah. nowadays where it's like, here, do you like have a cup of water in this box and, and then you're yeah, yeah, yeah. and then no. you're good. Yeah, no. And
3: microwave it. Right. Yeah.
2: Right. So it probably just has like the flour and maybe something else in it. Right. It has um, the yeah, you're right. It
1: has the base. Kind this
3: is of pretty similar pretty similar to what I grew up on. The only difference really, is that my mom would uh, let the she would get the strawberries. A lot of times we'd pick them ourselves, like in a big local field or something. And she would get the strawberries, she would cut them into the little pieces, kind of like you do. Uh, but then she would put a bunch of sugar on them. Oh,
1: no, my mom did the same thing. And
3: then just let them sit. Yep. And then they would get a bunch of juice yep. with it. So when we had those, we would put the juice on mm-hmm. with the cake yep. and the mm-hmm. uh, the whipped cream. So yeah. there was some liquid to it.
1: And we did the same thing growing up. That's exactly how we did it.
3: But didn't you put milk on it?
1: You yeah. But the first thing you did, but the strawberries themselves, you pour a bunch of sugar on, cover it, you let it sit for a while so that it gets that juice in it. And yeah, then for us, we would scoop it over the velvet crumb cake so that juice would still absorb into the cake and then put milk on top of it. And oh my heavens, that was
2: so good. I'm just like, (laughs) I just ate a
1: piece of Sydney's strawberry shortcake not long ago and I'm
2: drooling again. Yeah. Yeah. So this was very fun. Um, because we haven't had this recipe in a while and so it's fun to eat it and it was fun to um, find out more about it.
3: Well this is the month for birthdays for us actually the next month and a half or so we've got three of our family our immediate family that have birthdays in that month and we have friends that have birthdays this month so it it tends to be the post-easter birthday time frame for us and an important part of birthdays for us is of course doing the cake and the presents and yeah i really think and then singing the song maybe we could sing the song together okay happy birthday birthday to you happy birthday to you
0: happy birthday dear us happy
3: Happy birthday to you so every five-year-old knows the song it is the most frequently sung song in the English language, according to the Guinness Book of World Records. That's so funny. It surpasses the works of Bach, Beethoven, and the Beatles, <laughs> says the Songwriters Hall of Fame. It has been sung in 143 plus movies, translated into at least 18 languages, and is used in ads to sell everything from insurance to margarine. What song is that? It's the Happy Birthday song. Um, I'd like to see the scale of insurance to margarine, if those are on either <laughs> end. <laughs> What's in know? the middle? <laughs> I don't know. So, up until recently, 2016, Happy Birthday, that song was not part of the public domain, but instead a copyrighted moneymaker for its owners at Warner Brothers. Huh. But how did that happen? That's I, so funny. And I remember in that 2010 time frame, there was some big... A la
2: <laughs> <laughs> Great
1: word.
3: <laughs> Going on about the birthday song and people being frustrated, wanting to use it, can't use it. There was more alternative birthday songs coming up. So let's look at its roots and see why it got to that point. So it originally was a song that went, Good morning to you, good morning to you, good morning dear teacher, good morning to all. Oh, so wow, in the 1890s, right <laughs> the Hill Sisters wrote the precursor, to the birthday song. So the Hill sisters were Patty and Mildred Hill, who lived in Kentucky, Louisville, Kentucky. And they wrote this song for Patty's kindergarten students, and they called it Good Morning to All, which had the same melody. And it's believed that, yes, it had that melody, but it may have actually come from earlier songs as well. Uh, So Patty said in one of the suits that was later filed for the copyright of the song, that um, she, meaning Mildred, was the musician, and I, meaning Patty, was, if it's not using it too pretentious of a word, the poetess.
1: That is a little pretentious. a little bit. <laughs> yeah, the uh, <A> lyricist. <laughs>
3: right. Uh, so, Patty said that Mildred would work on the score each night in the family's Louisville home, and the next day she would try it out on her pupils, until they finally came up with a version that even the youngest children could learn with perfect ease. So the sisters published Good Morning in 1893 in a book of sheet music called Song Stories for Children, which they copyrighted and exhibited that year at the World's Fair in Chicago. So they copyrighted Good Morning. Using the same melody, children at the Louisville Experimental Kindergarten School would sing goodbye to you, happy vacation to you, and every birthday celebration, happy birthday to you. So, they put other words to the simple tune. Now, um, I thought it was interesting the Louisville Experimental Kindergarten. So, this was in 1893 ish and beyond. So, you have to remember that kindergarten didn't e- even become a thing in the United States until 1856 ish, right? And even until the 1970s, it was not a required thing. And it's just crazy that. There was just like everything at the Chicago World's Fair. Wasn't yeah, it? There, there really was. was. <laughs> there was like
0: songs for children right. and Suffered yeah.
1: Deaths going on and
0: Yes.
3: It's just like there was everything. The, uh, there. Carnegie Inventions. Brothers, the um Yeah. The it's
1: just like crazy. Yeah. Edison, all, all
3: those, things. yep, exactly. But when you look at this closely, you realize that and even the sisters admitted that they never published or copyrighted the lyrics specifically, Happy Birthday. Not even as the song grew increasingly popular over the next two decades from coast to coast. So, in the research, it definitely seems like Happy Birthday was sung in the Louisville area first, but the lyrics were developed informally and nobody could really take credit for it. It was said that it was kind of a folk song that just sort of happened. There is a plaque in Louisville that was put up in 2002 that says, quote, local history recounts, end quote that Patty Hill suggested during a birthday party for a girl named Lizette Hast in the little loom house in the Kenwood, Iroquois neighborhood, that the words, good morning to all, be changed to happy birthday to you. But there's no documentation that that story is actually true. That's just word of mouth kind of thing.
1: Oral tradition kind of thing.
3: Exactly. So Mildred died in 1916. Patty died in 1946. And the Hill family and its foundation filed multiple suits, lawsuits uh, challenging the unlicensed use of Happy Birthday, including it uh, against many famous people like Irving Berlin and his use of it. So the Summy, S-U-M-M-Y, company, which had published Song Stories for Children, did win a copyright in the 1930s for the Happy Birthday lyrics put to Mildred's Melody, but it was a specific arrangement, and that comes into play later. Wow. Oh. Fast forward to 1988. Warner Communications, as it's known now uh, as Warner Brothers, acquired the title along with 50,000 other songs in a $25 million deal and started collecting licensing fees each year for all the songs included, uh, including Happy Birthday to You. So there, it was estimated that six hundred and about six hundred twenty thousand dollars in royalties alone were collected in twenty eleven for this song. So people started to because the money was significant. People that wanted to use the song and because of the age of the song started to get frustrated with yeah with the cost. So some places like Restaurant Change started to create alternative songs. They do. They yeah. still yeah. do. Red like Lobster. Happy Happy yeah. TJ yeah. Fridays. I mean, that's the The one that I know of the
0: most, other than happy birthday. Yeah. The happy, happy birthday from all of us to you.
2: We wish you a happy birthday, blah, 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 (laughs) blah. I don't know it that well. I know
0: more of it than know it. Yeah. Yeah. So what you're saying is it's not as ubiquitous
3: as the other one. That's right. So the licensing royalties applied to everyone. So for instance, Walt Disney had to pay Warner Brothers $5,000 to use the song in a parade. The royalty charge for a scene from the civil rights documentary Eyes and the Prize, in which Martin Luther King Jr. celebrates his birthday, was so high that the film was never released on DVD. So, after Warner Brothers acquired the song rights in 1988, uh, it said that it held the copyright until 2030, which they gave them decades more to continue to reap the fruits from having the single highest earning song in history. Given the length of the copyright extension and the quasi-folk status, filmmakers and attorneys began to organize opposition to this being a uh, copyright-held song. So there was a couple of reasons um, that were focused in th- this discussion. One was that a man named Robert pronais I think it is, wrote in Copyright and the World's Most Popular Song that since only certain arrangements of the song were renewed in copyright in 1963, which was the end of the original copyright term, the song became part of the public domain for the for arrangements that weren't specific to that one arrangement. Yeah. So he was saying that the copyright, the original copyright ran out, they renewed it, the company renewed it in 1963, but it was for certain arrangements of the song only. So... His point was, so it's what not a copyright a... for everything. It's a copyright for those specific arrangements. So what is an arrangement of the song, Ben? So what well, like two people singing it together. Oh, right? that's very specific. Right, it would be a, a, a co- an example of a copyright arrangement. Okay. He also said that there was the wrong name was even included on the original copyright. So the original copyright was wrong to begin with, he said. And um, it's vague and not provable whether or not the Hill Sisters actually wrote those lyrics to the song right so those those were kind of the beginning arguments uh, along the way so but that was in in the late 80s early 90s that that argument kind of came to be so those arguments were combined with another case filed in california earlier and eventually that came over the years up through the judicial system to a judge in 2015 Right, So it took oh. several years for it to come oh, up. Sure did. And George, uh, Judge George H. King ruled in September of 2015 that Warner Brothers' copyright claim was indeed invalid and that the 1935 copyright they held only applied to a single arrangement of the song, not the song in its totality. So after September 2015, after that ruling, of February the next year, 2016, Warner Brothers agreed to pay out $14 million to those who had paid for okay. the song's use.
1: I wondered if they had to reimburse people.
3: And of March 2016, the judge deemed happy birthday part of the public domain Ooh. and now could be used. So, so it's wow. a happy ending. Yes, finally. very happy ending. Except a happy birthday song. song. It's, it's a, a why
0: happy, happy ending from all of us to you. That's right.
1: Well, why they had to, I mean, legally at the time, everybody thought Warner had the legal rights to that and according to the system they did so why do they have to repay everything
3: well the judge didn't make them repay back history they basically made them repay back just a short period of time when it was under dispute so during the dispute phase basically okay. um so that's why he specifically in his ruling said i'm only going to go back so far right yeah in the Cause in it, that'd be being paid course. back right, right okay so now it is free and clear Awesome. Yeah, so very fun, very so informative.
2: I wonder, like, like it would be interesting to see, like, the statistics of, like, um, how many companies went back to Happy Birthday. Like, did they just yeah. abandon their birthday yeah. songs, or did they, like, and embrace the Happy Birthday song, or, or did they keep theirs? So, I was thinking know? about
3: that as I saw that it became public domain. I was thinking about that. I I can't think of any place that I've seen somebody sing Happy Birthday in. Oh, I think In a so. long time. You mean like a restaurant? Yeah. yeah I think no. Recently. No. I, I They all have their own songs, I think. I
1: don't think Cracker
2: has its own song.
3: But I don't see them singing the Happy Birthday song.
2: That'll be interesting okay. to find
1: out. Like yes. just
3: like survey, heard, like
2: go around.
3: I've heard Happy Happy Birthday in restaurants a lot more
0: than I've heard We'll have to birthday. be yeah, more yeah, aware of it true. now that it's public domain. And yeah. Yeah. Maybe we can
3: inform all the restaurants. Oh, you know what? When yeah. I
0: worked at um, that steakhouse, yeah. we sang Happy Birthday, like... Um, the actual song, Happy Birthday. You did? So wow. The staff had to. Yeah. Yeah, none of us were happy about it, but. <laughs> <laughs>
2: but that's to know, yeah. I wonder if it's by region, too, like like how common it is to switch. Yeah. yeah.
3: Well, I didn't know. I, had, I remember this going on. I never remember that it went into public domain, I mean, so maybe not everybody realizes right. it is public domain now, yeah. and it's free and clear. So we could sing it. Of course, we. this is a free podcast, so it's, you know it's not like we're. Getting paid, so we could sing it, anyways. But if we, even if we were a podcast that made money, we could still sing it. That's right. Well, thanks everyone for the interesting topics. Our future festivities are for the week of April twentieth. April April twentieth is Patriots Day, which is like National
0: Patriots. You know, not New England. Yes, (laughs) although many of the Patriots were from
3: New England, so it does get confusing. Right, does get confusing, (laughs) but not. The football team. No, not the football team. That's important. The nation's patriots. Yes. Yes, it's difficult to explain. It, it. is difficult, yeah. <laughs> April 21st is National Kindergarten Day. April 22nd is National Administrative Professionals Day. April 23rd is National Take a Chance Day. It's also Bring Your Child to Work Day. I don't think that's going to happen, or right, it happens yeah. every day now. I thought you were going to say they're, <laughs> yeah. um, they're both related. Yeah, that's like you're right. taking a chance, yeah. letting your kid come to work with you. Yeah, well, yeah. that's also true. April twenty-fourth is National Arbor Day. April twenty-fifth is World Penguin Day. And April 26th is National Pretzel Day. I'd like to know what a World Penguin is. I <laughs> know, it's a big penguin. Is it like the World Turtle <laughs> from all those mythologies? <laughs> you can always follow us on social media. Our Twitter account is uh, holiday underscore moons. Our Instagram account is at holiday moons. You can find us on Facebook by searching in the search bar for Holiday Moons for our Facebook page and our Facebook group. And you can contact us at any time at holidaymoons at gmail.com. So for Cole,
2: Beth, Sydney,
3: Randy, have a a happy happy birthday. birthday!